If we want to protect what is in the soil and we want to accrue more, we need to start from putting more carbon into the soil. And that's why the organic system, the continuous system, the perennial system, the system that have manure inputs do better because all of a sudden you don't starve the microbes anymore, you give them more. And the best is if in the system you have continuously live roots because the majority of, of the, the carbon in the soil come from roots and root exudates. Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. This is Chuck from Moses. We have another really exciting three-part series starting today, and this one is in partnership with the Rodale Institute. If you're listening to this, there's a very good chance you already know about Rodale. But as a quick intro, they started in 1947 and have focused on researching and teaching organic farming since then. Their research focus areas include developing organic solutions to pests, diseases, and weeds, mitigating and adapting to climate change, and growing nutrient-dense foods. For this series, we're focusing on something really unique about Rodale. This year is the 40th anniversary of the Farming Systems Trial, the longest-running side-by-side comparison of organic versus conventional farming practices. These three episodes will cover their research on carbon sequestration, no-till organic vegetable production, and their watershed impact trial. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Chuck. I work at Moses, and besides making this podcast, I write for our free newspaper, The Organic Broadcaster, I plan content for our conference and field days, and I work on some of our other educational programs. We've been doing this podcast for a little over a year, and we've covered a pretty wide range of topics, including farmer cooperatives, mental health, pollinators, marketing, economics, and specifics of various kinds of production. While you're here, you might as well subscribe. Okay, for this show, we have a conversation with Dr. Andrew Smith, the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Scientist of the Rodale Institute, and Dr. Francesca Citrufo, Professor and Associate Head of the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences and Senior Scientist at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab at Colorado State University. We go in-depth on the practices and science of soil carbon sequestration. Let's get to it. I'm Dr. Andrew Smith. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief Scientist at Rodale Institute. So I oversee all of our research as well as our farming operations at the Institute, which includes work at our 333-acre main campus in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. But we now have several satellite campuses, including three research campuses in California, Iowa, and Georgia. And just about every single as a matter of fact, I think every single research study that we do has a soil health component. The Rodeo Institute has been in existence since 1947, and probably since that time, we've been very highly focused on how we improve the, the health of the soil and soil health. And we've always used the term soil health. I know soil scientists have argued about whether we should call it soil health or soil quality, but we think the soil is living. And so when you talk about something that's living, you talk about health. If you talk about something that's inanimate, like my desk, that I could just throw away tomorrow if it doesn't, if it's no good anymore, uh, then it's quality. And, and we can't throw the soil away because if we do, how are we going to feed ourselves and feed the growing population? We have entomologists and soil scientists and plant pathologists. So we incorporate 
some of that in all of our projects. That's Hi, great. I'm... Francesca, do you want to go next? Hi, I'm Francesca Cotufo. I'm a professor at Colorado State University. I consider myself a soil ecologist or biogeochemist because in particularly I uh, study how carbon as well as nitrogen flow from plant to soils and back into the atmosphere and as into the soil is transformed by microbes and, and through those transformation create organic matter that has a lot of different services for us. And so more and more now I'm uh, studying how we can actually manage land in order to improve soil health and in particularly soil organic matter to sustain productivity as well as all the other services, including mitigating climate change. I am a scientist that started doing this, almost have a passion on the foundational science uh, of, of these topics and I don't only work in ag actually I started my research in natural ecosystems and I carried projects from the tropics to the arctics but more and more I'm working now in ag both in pasture land and croplands because that's where the solutions can be found to mitigate climate change and support productivity. Thank you it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Drew, do you want to give some more background about the Farm Systems Trial? So this year, we're celebrating the 40th year of the Farming Systems Trial. The Farming Systems Trial is the longest-running side-by-side comparison of organic and conventional farming systems in North America, and it started in 1981. Um, The reason it started really was from a report that the USDA put out in 1980 that was mostly based on the subscribers to Organic Gardening and Farming magazine that Rodale Press was in charge of. And what the USDA found was that there was actually a large number of farmers practicing organic or chemical-free agriculture. And and these weren't just people in their backyards. They were large-scale farms. Um, So it was one of the first times that was kind of eye-opening that suggested that organic farming was practical on, on scale. And so in 1981, Bob Rodale, the son of the founder, J.I. Rodale, started the farming systems trial to start to investigate and put science. One of the things the report said was there's really no science behind organic agriculture. There's nothing, there's no data to show that uh, you can do it as well as you as the current conventional or standard methods. So the original farming systems trial was really meant to answer the question can you get enough nitrogen from natural fertility sources like green manures, cover crops, and compost compared to synthetic fertilizers? Um, and so that started in 1981, as I, as I said, and probably some of the key findings from that research are that after a four-year transition period, we attribute this to a change in the soil health, um, the organic farming systems had no significant difference in yields between the organic and the conventional system. So there was no difference in yields once we, in our our terms, healed the soil. What we found over time is that during periods of drought or during periods of low rainfall, there is actually higher yields in the organic systems. And what we attribute this to is improved soil health and maybe more specifically, higher levels of soil organic carbon in the organic systems compared to the conventional systems. So we weren't 
setting out in 1981 to try to increase carbon in the soil. And at that time, no, you know, maybe climate change and global warming were on some people's radar, but it really wasn't on, on ours at the time. We were really putting these practices into place, things like cover crops, green manures, and compost as a way to provide fertility to the plants. And this is largely the way that organic farmers at the time were, were farming, and to, to many respects still are. But at the time, soil scientists certainly understood that higher carbon levels in the soil improve soil quality. It, it improves water holding capacity and improves the soil structure. So more you have greater water infiltration, which is probably why we see better yields in the organic during low rainfall years. So we, we know that there's a whole host of benefits of improving, including increasing the soil organic carbon. And then when we looked at, you know, more recently, there, it seemed like this method of farming, we call regenerative organic farming, might actually provide a solution to climate change. It might actually have the ability to sequester carbon or take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil. And this has gotten a lot, a lot of attention recently. Um, so it's been a, a focus area of ours. And I think it's really why we wanted to have an expert uh, like Dr. Francesca Citrufo to be on today and probably tell us a little more technical terms. She can she has a better handle of the process and how it happens. But if I explain the farming systems trial briefly, we have the conventional method or the conventional system, which it basically follows about 70% or more of the acres in the United States. It's a, a corn and soybean rotation that uses uh, we now introduce GMO crops and herbicide tolerant crops, and it uses synthetic fertilizers as a source of fertility and pesticides and insecticides. Then we have a legume system, and this system has not received any fertilizer inputs in its history. And the only sources of fertility are from plants or plant-based sources of fertility like leguminous crops. And then we have the manure system, which reflects a livestock operation that is growing forage. So it has a more diversified crop rotation that includes an alfalfa orchard grass phase, as well as a diverse field crop rotation, grain crop rotation. And we incorporate composted dairy manure back into the field. So those are the three differences. And in 2008, it was split between a till and a no-till system where the conventional system is continuous no-till and the organic system is what we call rotational no-till because we're still tilling in order to establish our cover crops. So one of the findings from a soil organic carbon level, or one of the, the findings in soil organic carbon is that the manure system has the highest level of soil organic carbon compared to the other two systems. And that the, both of the organic systems in, in, a, in a short period of time, in the first 10 or 15 years, increased rapidly and now the accumulation of soil carbon in the soil has slowed. Some people call that a saturation or it might be reaching a saturation point. So those are the relevant things to understand. And I, I'll give a, a high level view of what a lot of people ask, what is soil carbon sequestration? And you know, I'll describe it very simplistically. You know, basically we're taking carbon dioxide through photosynthesis out of the atmosphere and then putting it into the soil. Uh, through the plant, either by the plant accumulating uh, plant-based residues or through exudates that go through the plant, through the roots and feed the, mi the microbial or the biology in the soil. I mean, if I get this right, you know, kind of the older 
were previous or maybe even still view that's held is that a lot of the carbon is stored there in the plant material. And it depends on the time it takes for that plant material to, to break down. Um, but I think we're starting to understand that microbes play a key role, uh, maybe more of a greater role in soil carbon sequestration. So what I'd like to do is ask Francesca to give us maybe her definition of soil carbon sequestration and maybe a little more technical about the different types of carbon. We know that carbon is not, not equal when it, once it gets into the soil. So if you don't mind taking it from there. Sure, thanks Drew. Um, yes, and, and you know, it, the, the most simple way of looking at soil carbon is that is a pool that of course require inputs uh, but then, as Drew was saying before, it's a pool that is alive. And so as we respire and we don't build, you know, fortunately, not all what we eat become our mass, right? But we actually respire most of it. That's what microbes in soil do, or also the roots in soil do. And they respire some of that carbon that the plant put in. And so in order to um, achieve carbon sequestration, but also maintain the soil healthy and alive because it is that biotic activity that make the soil giving the function we need, like recycling the nutrients and so forth, you do want to have high inputs and also diversified inputs, and also inputs in which both the carbon and the nitrogen come in. And that's why the manure plot had high success, because manure has relatively low carbon to nitrogen ratio, meaning that you have a more palatable food for the microbes when they get into the soil. And so what happens when you have plant inputs into the soil is that those inputs can come in in soluble forms, like, for example, the exudate that are continuously put in the soil from the from the roots, as well as the carbon that is leached from the the residue themselves is what you know you could think of as the tea that comes comes in when it rains on the on the residues. These soluble parts are very accessible to uh, microbes, but they can also directly bond to the minerals. And so either to direct bonding to the minerals, and when I say minerals, I mean silt and clay, but I mean also uh, aluminum and iron silicate, cation bridging, and so forth. There are different ways in which minerals in the soil can bond organic matter. Some of that, again, comes straight as dissolved organic matter from plant material, but some of it come from the microbial transformation of that organic matter and so in the form of microbial products and microbial necromas. And so this, this material, when it's bonded to minerals, is what we call the mineral-associated organic matter. And this uh, pretty protected from further decomposition, unless it's the only source of carbon in the soil. So it's, the protection is not a universal concept that once organic matter is stabilized on mineral, it will never decompose. We now understand that there is no such thing as a passive 
pool of carbon. All the carbon can become active if the microbe are activated and if that is the only source of carbon to microbes. And that's why we need to maintain that diversified uh, set of inputs so that we can build mineral-associated organic matter, but also not having the microbes needing to use it. But on the other hand, to do that, it means that we also need to have continuous inputs of what we call more the structural component of plant material. So you can imagine more the fibrous part. That material, on one hand, uh, the microbes might take a little bit longer to, to use, and that's for it can accumulate in the soil as particulate organic matter. But typically, it's more accessible to decomposition, it's more vulnerable to decomposition because it's not protected by that mineral bonding. What it can protect, the particulate organic matter, is aggregation. And that's why, for example, tillage, and so, so aggregates are, are, um, are actually promoted from the inputs of plant material as well as the microbe that create those mucilagin that bond together organic matter and, and minerals and create those aggregates. And those aggregates are dynamic structure. They, they form and they break. Some are more stable, some are less stable. But when the particulate organic matter is bond in aggregates, it can be more protected from further decomposition. And that's why tillage helps sequestering more carbon, in particular in the top soil, because it doesn't break those aggregates. When we till the soil, we break the aggregate structure and we make the organic matter more vulnerable to microbial uptake. But just to recap, the, the thing to consider uh, and, and, um, and is important, since I studied natural ecosystem, I can bring my ecological experience of our soil, healthy soil function to agriculture. And so if you imagine what we have done in a conventional agricultural system, first of all, we have depoverished the soils from inputs. A lot of crops only happen for a short period of time, and they are the same, and we breed them to actually have little roots and a lot of above-ground biomass because that's what we use for us as food and for animal feed. And so we basically have designed agricultural system that have seldom and little inputs into the soil. And, and, and that seldom inputs means that we, in agriculture, like imagine, you know, the, the worst is the wheat fallow that we do here in Colorado, but even corn, soybean, or, or, or corn on corn, they are only cultivated for a period of time. And so the microbes in the soil, but also the fauna in the soil get starved 
every now and then they don't get any fresh inputs and they are still there they are not you know they are not they don't die they diminish in activity they diminish in size but there's never the soil's never sterile it all, there is always a bit of microbes that are active there and so when they don't get that fresh input they start using the carbon that is already in the soil and that's why it gets eroded if you take that we also disturb the soil with tillage and we break those aggregates we basically make the organic matter much more accessible and even the mineral associated organic matter when there are no more fresh inputs the microbes will consume it and so if we want to protect what is in the soil and we want to accrue more we need to start from putting more carbon into the soil and that's why the organic system the continuous system the perennial system the system that have manure inputs do better because all of a sudden you don't starve the microbes anymore you give them more and the best is if in the system you have continuously live roots because the majority of, of the, the carbon in the soil come from roots and root exudates. And so if you maintain live roots in the soil, you are constantly feeding the microbes, but you are also constantly keeping plant structure that maintain that aggregation and, and provide both the source for the particulate organic matter and for the mineral organic matter formation. And so sometimes I've made the, the example of the bank accounts, you know, in order for you to stay healthy and to provide for your kids, you need to, first of all, have a good check every single month that come in. If you stop having that check, you start being in trouble, right? So you need to have the input constantly. The inputs need to be enough for your spending because if you are alive and you if you are functional you need to spend and that's the same for the soil we need to give the soil enough for the microbes to work on it and to regenerate fertility and to maintain the biodiversity and and then you need to have in excess of that so that you can also put some in the saving and that is what you can imagine the mineral associated organic matter in agricultural system, basically, we, we stop that continuous check. It doesn't come 12 months a year. It comes like three, four, five months a year. For the rest, the microbe need to, to, to use the checking, which is the, the mineral-associated organic matter. And so you never build and you always actually reduce. The other thing is the diversification of that input. Microbes are like us, they have a high requirement, they have a high amount of their biomass into proteic structures. And so they need the proteins of both carbon and nitrogen. And if you compare them to the structure of plants like celluloses or lignin, they, cellulose have no nitrogen, lignin have very little nitrogen. And so microbes require proportionally more nitrogen for every unit of carbon that they store with respect to plants. And so if we only crop grains, we give those microbes very little nitrogen, and that's why we need to fertilize. 
Instead, if we diversify the rotation and have legumes in the rotation, we start giving more nitrogen that can be enough both for supplying nitrogen for plant growth and the grains growth, but also to supply nitrogen for the microbes and have their functioning and have their accumulating biomass and built organic matter. Because if there is not enough nitrogen in the soil, the microbe use the organic matter that is there and respire off the carbon and liberate the nitrogen that then the plant can, can access. And so you can sequester carbon or you can produce biomass without thinking of the nitrogen. And conventional agricultural solution has been to add mineral nitrogen. When you add mineral nitrogen, you basically bypass the microbes because the work of the microbes is to mineralize the organic matter and provide those nutrients for the plants. If you just give mineral nutrients, you basically modify the microbial community. In particular, you reduce the uh, mycorrhizal fungi because plants don't need them anymore. Mycorrhizal fungi are organisms that help plant acquire nitrogen and water and phosphorus and so if we give mineral phosphorus and mineral nitrogen the mycorrhizal fungi start to decrease and the only you start to sometimes acidify the soil and you erode the microbial biomass but also the microbial diversity and you start having only bacteria and you also start to promote methane emissions if you have a lot of mineral nitrogen and so when you move to an organic system or to a regenerative system basically what you do you you make the system working on its own and working with this ecological integration of plant microbe and in my in my opinion is also very important to add the fauna component into this system because you know it's not by chance that manure help the soil because generally you do want the animal doing some sustainable grazing so and and then their dropping help the soil build carbon and so i think that is not just a plant soil microbial interaction the 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 integration of livestock can also help the efficiency of these cycles and closing them that's one thing that we often talk in biogeochemistry we want the system to help, to work on its own and to have uh, more integrated, more efficient, and more closed cycles, in particular the nitrogen cycle, so that you don't lose it and you keep it going around. When you talked about the bank account, you know, what I started to think about a little bit was with Sir Albert Howard, who's considered the father of organic agriculture, who was working on compost, and he, he called it the law of return, where you should be putting more into the soil than you take away every year, you know. And so what you're describing to me was, you know, if I do that, then I'm in a better financial situation. I'm saving, right? Because someday down the road, I might need to cash that in to buy something. Um, a farmer might cash that in and increase the yield. But I'm thinking that if we are consistently taking more than we have each time, doesn't that ultimately lead us to a debt or a bankrupt situation, which might be what we're seeing in some agricultural systems? You use the term necromance. And what I got from 
your description was that the microbes are critically important for long-term soil carbon, but those constant inputs are critically important because a farmer needs those every single year to provide a source of fertility. And if they don't have those, they're going to steal it from the mineral associated organic matter. Could you tell the listeners what necromass is or microbial necromass is? Yeah, so uh, in ecology, we call biomass the mass of a living organism and necromass that mass the moment in which the organism die. And so it's not necessarily different. It's just that that mass become necro when the organism is, is dead. We also need to go back to the idea that both plant and microbial necromasses or residues contribute to the soil. It's not just the plant or it's not just the microbes. If we analyze the chem, and that's very difficult still for us, even with the high quality instrumentation that is now available to exactly tell how much is microbial origin and how much is plant origin. But um, it's pretty clear that we need both to have an healthy soil. And, and more than the origin of the two, is important the chemical structure of the two. We need both the, low, the what we call low molecular weight soil soluble material uh, because they exchange with the minerals and they can form the mineral associated organic matter but they are also what the microbe can uptake microbes cannot uptake big structures they need to break them make them soluble and then can uptake them and so the plant structures, like imagine a big complex lignin molecule, or they tend to stay for a few years in the soil because the microbe have to invest more energy to break them down. And they do have an important role in, in the soil. But when they break down, the microbes do not get much energy out of them. And so the efficiency of conversion to organic matter of those more complex molecules is not very high. And instead, the exudates and the plant material, for example, from leguminous plant, they have a very high efficiency of necromass production. Again, imagine, uh, imagine us when we have a diet, there are some food that make us build more of our organic matter and we get bigger and bigger. And there are some food that we burn off quickly and we respire it off. And so for, for the microbe, the investment that they need to put to break a molecule like lignin is so high that they accumulate only a little bit of that carbon into their own biomass first and then necromass when they die. Whereas glucose is very energetically favored to microbe, and so it's used faster, but it produces more necromass. And so what we talk in terms of plant inputs is efficiency of formation of soil organic matter. And so that's another thing that increases with nitrogen and increase with more soluble and labile material. And that's why leguminous plants are so good for formation 
of organic matter and they should be integrated into rotation and cover crop and cropping system. Uh, but also the reason why the animals help in the process because animals break those fiber in their gut and then their manure has already done that job that is so dispendious for microbes. And so the microbes use with higher efficiency the dung of the animals uh, as compared to the fiber that the animal ate. And so that's why also the animal accelerate the, uh, the mineralization, but also the formation of uh, the efficiency of formation of organic matter. You, you reminded me of some projects that we've started in the farming systems trial this year. Um, the last couple of years, we've been measuring the microbial community structure in the farming systems trial, as well as looking at how soil health impacts water quality. Um, but this year, we're going to be measuring uh, in the farming systems trial, as well as other long-term farming trials in the United States, uh, looking at plant necro or the uh, microbial necromass, as well as measuring carbon use efficiency, or yeah. the, the, the efficiency of the carbon to kind of maintain that carbon, right, as opposed to turn it into carbon dioxide. So those are novel or, you know, novel areas of inquiry that you're on the forefront of that we're also starting to investigate. If you allow me, another thing I wanted to touch on is what you said, the, the possible saturation of your system. Uh, so in particularly mollisols that are some of the most abundant agricultural soils in the U.S. or the world, uh, they are typically rich in carbon. And so even if they have been eroded some by conventional agriculture, they still retain quite a bit of carbon. And so there is so much capacity to accrue more on the top. But those soils are very deep. And the deep soil have a lot of minerals that are not very far from saturation. And so the other concept is to both breed for plants that have deeper roots, but also have perennial phases, or if not, uh, you know, entirely perennial system, so that you can start putting carbon down at depth. And of course, there will be some initial responses because you all of a sudden wake up the microbes at depth. And so you could activate them and they can start decomposing some of the carbon that was there. But at the end of the day, the balance is always in favor of more formation. So you are going, if you start having deeper roots, you're going to have more CO2 emissions from the deep soil, but it's generally always less than the amount of carbon that you are sequestering. And so that's another thing that is important in these regenerative systems is not only to have live roots throughout the year, but also have deeper roots so that you can have more input throughout the soil column. It raises another important finding in the farming systems trial. Every three years, we take one meter deep soil cores. And we knew from looking at our zero to 20 centimeter soil sampling that we had higher carbon in the manure system. But when we started to look deeper, we found that that 20 to 30 centimeter depth, which a lot of times when you go out to a farm or a field and take a soil sample, you don't go that deep. But we saw significantly higher levels of soil organic carbon in the organic systems, even compared to the conventional no-till. But our conventional no-till, at least until 2015, 
did not include a cover crop. Uh, we now, in one of the systems, have included a rye cover crop. But that's, I think that goes exactly what you're saying. Without living roots to put that soil down there, or even without tillage to bury those residues, we're not getting that carbon that's deeper into the soil profile. You talked a little bit about the livestock integration. In 2019, the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change identified agricultural activities as responsible for nearly 24% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a lot that goes into that. That's transportation, that's production of fertilizer, refrigeration, um, and, and certainly the, the activities on the farm. But many reports suggest that we need to significantly reduce the amount of livestock or animals that we have in agriculture. Some even suggest that we should completely eliminate livestock or go to a complete vegan diet in order to, you know, that's the solution for climate change or one of the solutions for climate change. I know you have a recent a paper that was recently published on grazing and you've already talked a little bit about the benefits of animals and soil organic carbon formation. Uh, I'm wondering if you can address that, you know, the benefits of livestock in a regenerative system. Yes, and again, I my answer is the the answer of a of an ecologist. It's a, a fact that uh, the way in which we raise livestock and the and the amount of livestock that we produce is too much and and contributes to a high amount in particular methane emission into the atmosphere. However, when we look at regenerative practices, animals are an important and integral part of the system. And so again, we need to rethink the way in which we do agriculture, but also we need to rethink our diets. I'm for sure not advocating that we need to eat more meat or even the amount of meat we eat today. Definitely, we need to reduce the amount of animal products that we consume globally. But I don't think that eliminating, besides being impossible, but it's a, it wouldn't be helpful if the animals were entirely out of the picture. For different reasons, uh, again, animals have an important in agricultural agroecosystem. Livestock integration can help and accelerate the formation of organic matter as well as the uh, recycling of nutrients and make those systems not depending on mineral uh, nutrient additions. So let's say if you have cover crops, having animal graze in a sustainable way those cover crops with rotational grazing, uh, you do not have the bad impact of conventional grazing with compaction and with erosion of the soil and with the erosion of biodiversity of the grasses, but you have all the benefits that the animal can have. And you also diversify the profits for the farmer and you make overall the farm operation both ecologically and financially more resilient. 
The other part, and we see that here in Colorado, is that with climate change, it's going to be hard to crop the land here and will require a lot of water uh, and irrigation uh, if you want to use land for cropping and a much more sustainable use of the land in the area of, of short grass stepper is definitely adaptive rotational grazing. And so if we, if we stop consuming livestock, then those farmers will be, will not have a revenue and either have to crop and till and irrigate or they need to sell their land for gas and oil extraction or for the built environment. And so, you know, I think that, that livestock and, and sustainable uh, grazing land is by far a better solution than, than those others. Every place has its own solution to sustainability and, and all the options need to be on the plate. We can't say no animals are out of the picture because natural environments always have animals and there is a reason for that. And, and we are talking livestock, but even more pest controls and insects and birds and bees and pollinators, you know, all of those animals are key to the sustainability of agroecosystems. Great. So what I heard you say is that if done right, animals can be part of the solution to climate change and not the culprit. But if done right and, if, and with a sensible diet, um, some of my thoughts too is that if we, as we do reduce meat production, we'll, we'll have a more diverse diet. And that'll mean that we're providing an incentive to farmers to grow more diverse crops. And uh, what I was thinking about when you're talking about diversified crop rotations was not only is there a benefit to the soil of having diverse crop rotations, but what we find is that we provide windows of opportunity to plant cover crops and to plant leguminous plants as well. So for us in the farming systems trial, having small grains in the rotation provides a chance to put in a cover crop and that's really how we've been able to achieve a organic no-till or a rotational no-till where we, at least in the spring, are rolling and crimping or terminating cover crops uh, without the use of, of herbicides, without a good crop rotation, you know, that you're thinking about four or five, six years in advance. You know, you really can't, it, it can't function, which tells you a little bit, which I know we've talked about before, is that part of this equation is adaptive management or the management of the farmer. Maybe it's improving the education of farmers, but it's not always the newest technological advance or how do we create something that can suck carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into some form. We, oh, some it's, some it's of just more, need to learn, right? It's more understanding the principles and understanding your systems and being able to manage it adaptively to respond to the, to the situation. Also here to here, unfortunately with climate change, we are going to have more variability from here to here and the farmer will need to be, first of all, educated to have the tools that can predict what the climatic characteristic of that year are going to be and, and plan in advance. 
months, but also be able to to check on the system and understand how it's doing and un- understand when to do what according to regenerative principles. So the regenerative agriculture cannot be prescriptive and cannot be extensive. It needs to be intensive and it needs to have the farmer in charge of their own land, understanding it and understand how to best manage it. It's like each of us might suffer from, I don't know, headache, but I might respond to a treatment different from you and I know myself and I know what works for me. And and so farmers need to know their system as much as they know, you know, how to take care of themselves and their family. They need to know their system and what are the, the cure uh, that work best to make the system resilient again, both ecologically but also economically. You know, farmers that's their well being, and so that that's their uh, they they need to make a profit. They can't just do it to help us mitigate climate change. They need to do it to make their profit and 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 to leave a better land for their kids. And uh, and one thing that is, in my opinion, make farming now more stimulating, more exciting, more because it's it's a challenge and you need to understand what to do. You are in charge of the decision as a farmer. And when you do it right, you help yourself and your family and your business, but you also help the environment. And so I think that farming today can actually be a very interesting business to get into. But of course, it needs to have the the support also at the policy level and insurance level you know we need to change a lot of the infrastructure that support conventional farming to help farmer transition and adopt the large-scale regenerative practices i'm glad you mentioned the thing about the farmers enjoying it more because i've talked to a lot of farmers who either went from confinement animal operations to grazing operations or went from conventional grain to organic grain. Talk about how much more fun it is and how much more interesting it is. And so it's it's really interesting to see the ways that it benefits farmers in a really holistic way. And also I think like sometimes we have students that feel like we have our finger against them, like, you know, farming is bad for the environment. And so going from being the one that caused climate change to being the one that can provide the solution to climate change is also a huge sense of, of, of fulfillment. And more and more, the new generation want to be part of the solution. And uh, and going back to farming is going to be one of the things they can do to be part of the solution. Yeah, that's a great point. And we need to figure out a way that if we're going to put that much responsibility and burden on the farmers to solve global environmental challenges, that is there an incentive or is there is there exactly. a reward to them in some way for and also in the academic world, we need to modify the way in which we teach farming and, and, and do a better job at preparing them to knowing what to do and how. And um, so it's, it's, it's the entire system from the academia to the, the policy, the consultant and everything need to work in together to, to make that transition. 
I think it's pretty obvious that we have to make that transition and that if we care about our kids and the world we leave to them, uh, and that actually if we make that transition, it will be a win-win-win-win from all point of view. But we do need to work together to make to enable the farmer to make that transition. They can't be abandoned and just say, you know, you have to do this and take the risk. And you were talking about the analogy of your own health um, and how you know your your body better. It was making me think a little bit of the analogy of farming versus maybe modern medicine. You know, we have the choice where we on a daily basis can take care of ourselves through a good, healthy diet and, and exercise and planning, um, as or we can just go out there and take a drug if we get sick, which is very similar to kind of the conventional farming model that if exactly. there's an insect test, we just yeah. go find something to spray. And to your point about being advocates for our the forms of agriculture that we have, we've been really working to educate doctors and people in the medical field so that they can then understand that how people eat and having a diversified diet is important. And we look at the mass amount of money that we're funneling into the medical system, what if we put even just a fraction of that into our, into our food system, would yeah. we be healthier and not need all those, those medical costs? And I yeah, think part I of think it comes with doctors understanding. Exactly. That, that, that parallel is, is, is perfect. It's like, it's either a system where only a few industry benefit from uh, but as a society, we actually spend more because, uh, you know, individuals that take care of themselves, have a healthy diet, have a sporty life and keep fit, they cost much less to the society than individuals that eat poorly and then develop diseases and they need to have chemicals. You know, there will be the medical industry that, that will make money, but the rest of the society will actually pay more and the individual will be miserable. Whereas, you know, if you transition to systems that are better able to support themselves and requiring less inputs, on one hand, uh, yeah, there will be a few industries that might make less profit or they need to learn how to make profit in a different way. But overall, as a society, we'll also pay less. And I know I'm biased because I work in agriculture, but I'd like to see more of that money go to farmers and sure. support rural communities. So that's a major, major focus. Well, thank you for that. So as I'm thinking about the farming systems trial, and we've run this for 40 years now, and some people say, well, why did you even, you know, why keep it going? You know, and I try to explain, well, you know, if we stopped after 10 years, we would have not known changes in soil organic carbon or how it might impact climate change. And it's also a systems experiment. So we're not stuck in, in that it's always this way. You know, we, we didn't have genetically modified crops when we started. Now we do. So we've, and now that the majority of people are using them, we put them in into the conventional system. So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you, Francesca here to help me because, you know, at 40 years, we're starting to think, okay, what changes could we make? Like we mentioned before, we're, it seems like we're plateauing or our, our soil organic carbon has reached saturation, uh, but we'd like to push it and, and push the limits. And, and we know that we have a growing population. So we, we can't just kind of rest and say, well, this, this level of production is good now. 
We know we need to increase production. So if we were to make changes in the farming systems trial, if we were, if there were things that were new or exciting that we would want to research, what are some of the things that be that would be on your mind? So I guess we already touched a little bit on that. One is the deeper soil. So you might have saturated the top, but there is no way you have saturated the deeper soil. And so if you can start increasing the diversity, thinking of plants that develop deeper roots or having perennial stages that can have that deeper roots, or even work with breeders to think about even the major crop now, working with colleagues in the breeding sector and look at breeding varieties for more and deeper roots. The other thing, you know, the diversification and the animal integration. And so thinking more about how to uh, integrate livestock, but also poultry, you know, after you harvest, you can have the poultry come in and and use the grains left over or the pollinators. And and so the general creation of more of of an agroecosystem And then maybe some of the measurements, you know, I don't know exactly what you guys have been monitoring, but, you know, we need more and more to understand the mechanism by which these systems are more resilient and more productive. And so maybe you could use this long-term sites to do more analysis of the connection between carbon, hydrogen and water, maybe start looking at phosphorus and think more about this plant microbial connectivity. So from the standpoint of the actual monitoring of, of those sites. And I guess the other thing we've thought about is as we have multiple locations that we can start to put long-term trials um, because certainly how soils react to some of these practices in the South where there's warmer temperatures and maybe higher rainfall will be Yeah, and if you want to come to the West, our problem with regenerative agriculture is that we don't have the water. Um, and so, you know, there isn't that much we can, we can do. And that's why a lot it will be pasture and, and do better job at sustainable pasture management. So for us, the water is also key. Excellent. Uh, Chuck, do you have any more questions for us? Yeah, Drew, could you talk more about, um, you've reached a certain percent soil organic matter and the things that you're doing aren't building it anymore? Right. And, and that's a pretty, uh, I think, a standard thought in soil science that you accumulate carbon and you get to a point where it's difficult to accumulate more carbon. To some extent, the, micro, the microbial activity that is created by the fact that you have accumulated more carbon, you, you generate more life in the soil. And as uh, Dr. Satrufo was explaining, that these organisms respire. So as they eat the carbon, they respire. Certainly, we're continuing to practice tillage in organic. And as Dr. Satrufo mentioned, you know, tillage can make the carbon more vulnerable. So a lot of our research is heavily focused on how we can reduce tillage as well as increase cover crops in the use of cover crops and cover crop diversity in these organic systems. And we do a lot of work outside of our farming systems trial to inform if these practices are effective before we put them into the trial. Because because we want the farming systems trial to be reflective of the standard practices in agriculture. Um, so it's not really the most novel thing. But to your point, at the farming systems trial, we took a piece of land that was heavily degraded, you know, full inversion, tillage, 
and heavy chemical use until 1972. When actually, I take that back. We took we bought the farm in 1972, but we didn't actually purchase that piece of land until later in order to run the farming systems trial. Um, until recently, it was the only place on the property that received chemicals. So from 1972, the majority of the Rodale Institute has not had any synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides on it, except for this one plot. So it was somewhat excluded from the other part of the property. But so we were pretty degraded. The soil organic matter was around two, two and a half percent when we started. And that's still what we see around most of the fields that are surrounding us. Um, the majority of the soils at the Rodale Institute are about five to six percent organic matter. They might actually receive more compost, more cover crops and things like that than the farming systems trial because they're not necessarily in a research trial where we're kind of what I would say. I sometimes say we're stuck in a research trial because there's little, little flexibility. And then in a short period of time, about five, five or six years, we saw what would be a significant increase in soil organic matter so we could statistically measure it and see that there was an increase. And then in 1995, there was another uh, very good amount of research that was done to show the, the that increase from 1981 to 1995. And then if we look at some of our more recent estimates, that change, that rate of change, you know, or the percent increase in organic matter from 1981 to 1995 has not been as large, if that makes sense. So we, we're getting to a point where we um, are not accumulating carbon in the soil as fast, although it still looks like we're accumulating some Carbon and then to some, we're, we're we're also on a perfectly flat piece of land, so we're we're not prone to erosion. And the conventional system has also accumulated a little bit of carbon. Previous studies show that there was no statistical increase in carbon in the conventional system, but we if we do another analysis now from 1981 to now, it probably looks like there has been some small accumulation of carbon even in the conventional system. And I attribute that some of that to the fact that there's there's not very little erosion, so that erosion could have played a major role in, in some of these factors. So we're really starting to ask the question in our work outside of the farming systems trial, how do we get to the next level? You know, if our soils are at four to five percent organic matter on most of our fields, how do we get to six, seven, or eight percent organic matter? And that's in our soils. You know, some areas might already be there, and some areas or some types of soil, it might be very difficult to get to six, seven, eight percent. And and could we, and could it keep going? Could we get to eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve? Is that a possibility? Uh, as you said, only the mineral associated organic matter saturate to get to like twelve percent organic carbon, you go into the organic soils, and those soils have the carbon mostly in particulate organic matter. And so, in order to get to those level, it means that you have to have a lot of input that outpace the output. And so you are not going to have much stabilized organic carbon, but you can have a high amount of organic carbon only if you maintain very, very, very high inputs. So it gets to a point in which you don't even need that much carbon in agricultural soils. Those are values that you see in peatlands or, or organic soil. We've talked about you know, agriculture potentially being a solution. You know, another solution would be that we just leave these lands and turn them back into 
forest ecosystems or something along those lines. Of course, we need the land to feed people. But in your research, have you compared carbon accumulation in a grassland system versus forest? Um, we have uh, actually have a paper that is coming out in, uh, in Nature Geoscience about different soil type in, uh, in Europe. And for sure, conifers have a lot of carbon in the topsoil, a lot in the particulate organic matter. And so there, it's more a question of avoid conversion of additional land. So for sure, that's another reason to use sustainably and regenerate the soils that are currently under agriculture and that have been eroded by years and years and millennia of of bad farming in order to avoid the conversion of more natural land. We need to stop deforest, we need to stop drain wetlands. So those are the worst source of carbon you can imagine. And so we already have converted uh, a lot of natural land to agriculture. Now we need to work on those lands and make them, regenerate them and make them productive and make them resilient and able to be sustainable into the future. So that's the most important thing, it is to avoid conversion. With a growing population, it's hard to imagine that we can spare any of our agricultural land and convert it back. Unless, again, it's land in areas where climate change will make agriculture not feasible anymore. And those are the areas that are going to be too dry to cultivate. But there are also going to be other areas, in particular in the north, in Canada and so forth, that are going to become a little bit more productive because of improved temperatures. Whenever I think about, you know, food supply or focusing on yield and things like that, I just think about how much of the United States is used to grow ethanol and cattle feed and wondering like how much land we actually need to feed ourselves if if agriculture is for feeding ourselves, which it so often isn't. So it seems like it's a combination of practices and policy that's this kind of like big systemic... And us as consumer, you know, change diets and change habits. And so it's, it's, it's a system that needs to change. With the consumer choice thing too, it's, it's something that like not that many people can really afford that many choices. <laughs> like it's, uh, so it, it, that's like another systemic thing that I think about with this too, is just like low income people can't just decide to eat better, especially if they can't travel to an actual grocery store or something. So it's like, there's all these um, societal things that, that are connected to agriculture through, through eating, but are, you know, about income inequality and food apartheid and things like that, that are like, like beyond the scope of practices or land use or, or any of that. So I think they're all, they're, the reality is they're also interconnected though, right? I mean, we need to build local systems, farming systems, I mean, it, keeps, it keeps the dollars in the local communities, informs the farmers on what crops need to be grown, and it should provide more economic alternatives for people to eat healthier food. And we talked a lot about carbon sequestration today, but it's a lot more, there's a lot more to it yeah. than that. Thanks to the staff at the Rodale Institute for putting this together, especially Margaret Wilson and Caroline Berry. 
And thanks to Dr. Andrew Smith and Dr. Francesca Citrufo for the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and to tell a farmer friend about the show. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. Call the Organic Answer Line to ask a specialist about organic farming and certification at 888-90-MOSES or visit mosesorganic.org ask. All of our farmer specialists can talk to you about everything organic farming related, including grain, vegetables, fruit, all kinds of livestock, beekeeping, organic certification, food safety, marketing, urban farming, land access, and more. These services are available in English, Hmong, Spanish, Swahili, and Somali. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>